terms of that, this is, I mean, this is going to be a, a film, but um, they were good, they were making, they made the pilot to the TV show in Beverly Hills yeah. Cop, and it was Axel's nephew, I believe, and they cast it, and Axel was in it, Eddie Murphy was in it, um, and he and was really good, as Axel Foley, who I think is now the captain, um, but apparently his scenes were amazing, as Axel Foley, but, you know, it's like one of those, it's like that Batgirl film, I think he's just, like, disappeared, and, like, it's really hard to get your hands on very exciting times. I'm fine, you know, Beverly Hills Cop is what it is. Beverly Hills Cop 2 is absolutely what it is. And it's real Alien and Aliens wannabe or MI and MI2 wannabe in that it's, they're both very distinct in terms of direction and tone, palette um, and all of that. And then three is, you know, also very distinctive in tone and palette uh, in fairness. It's very flat, very flat. So in that case, I like number one, I like number two, but they're both in their own bubbles and they've never been influenced negatively by the existence of number three for me. And so anything four is, we'll be like, okay, uh, so we'll see. I'm open to it. I can't imagine I will be blown away, but I'm certainly happy it's happening. Um, yeah, so good, good, you know. I don't know what my idea for a Beverly Hills Club four could be, but I'm sure if and when we do do that, it would be something not influenced by this anyway. So, I think you, have you know, to have that, that moment, Sheffy, because it's probably the movie, isn't it, that has influenced this podcast the most for us, if, if you like. Yeah. But, yeah. So I, 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 it's interesting you say that because I've always assumed if we ever did it, it would be a replacement Beverly Hills Cop 3. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. No, and actually, I was, I was totally thinking that it's going to be time-locked anyway, because even <clears throat> what was number two, 87, I believe, I think. Yeah. So if number three was even earlier, like 1990, uh, that would be nice. So like a 1990 Beverly Hills Pop 3. Um, and, you know, don't wait like this. Fuck it. Give him a big budget. Get Brookheimer to stay on board. Um, go glossy. Don't do Axel Foley in Die Hard in a theme park. It, in theory, it's okay idea, but they didn't go all in and it didn't work anyway. So do something else, um, so, you know, and make no doing like he's back again. Give it something you know, <laughs> why he's there again. Bring back Jenny Summers, you know. Um, yeah. Have Jenny Summers be the baddie. I don't know. Oh She's been God. infected with Burkhoff juice. <laughs> um, so she gets a little dimple on her forehead. Oh no, you mean Burkhoff. Uh, take it, it's an, it's an unexpected direction for the franchise there. Uh, but maybe maybe we're on to a winner. So there you go. I'm I'm open to it. Yeah, sure. I didn't love coming to America. I sort of no, already forgotten it. Yeah. But I'm glad it exists. That's nice, you know. Fair play. Yeah, this fun. Yeah, I, I hope they make it a bit edgy. That's what it needs as well. I think a bit violent, Beverly Hills Cop 4. Yeah. But, you know, it'd be good. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see. Exactly. Good old Jonathan Banks. What a great career. Nonetheless. <laughs> He's a really Hills friendly Cop. man around Albuquerque, always posing for pics and being a nice guy. So that's, that's I mean, nice. yeah, that's very nice. Well, he'll always be the guy who I thought looked like Sylvester Stallone from Beverly Hills Cop to me. And he was also in 48 Hours. So. Him. He got shot by, was it James Neymar? Jimmy! I'm excited. I'm very excited. 
I think that's a good wind up. Shall we pitch in? I don't know. Does that make sense? Is that a sporting analogy there? It makes physically sense. Right? It makes sense. Well, look, welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I'm Jimmy, and my esteemed Hello. colleague is drum roll. <laughs> Thank you for the for the intro. I was perfectly. <laughs> Willing to jump ahead. Um, hello, I'm Shelby. I can see your legs. <laughs> yeah, I know. It did. I was doing a swan dive, but I was prepared to speak while upside down. So it's okay. But I appreciate you buying me some precious time with that flawless stalling. But I was, I was like Ethan Hunt. I was, I was ready to flip up and and speak and not spill a drop. Speaking of Eddie Murphy, Golden Child too coming soon. So there you go. Amazing. Out, we'll look. The Golden Man. The Golden Man. That's a perfect title. My God. Coming to a song near you, Sheppy. And uh, hopefully it's reassuring to know if you need to pop out for a pee, I can make the drum roll longer, shorter, whatever we need for the future. I need a drum roll actually to pee. That's very helpful. You can use that all the time. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> um, uh, you normally have a question for me at this uh, this time. Oh. Yeah, no, I forgot where we were. Absolutely, sir. Uh, it's a good question. And the question is, you said something about something called Shoulders of Giants. My question to you, good sir, is what on earth are you talking about? What is Shoulders of Giants? I'm so glad you asked me, Sheppy. <laughs> Shoulders of Giants is a, uh, a what-if podcast of, uh, I guess, uh, oh God, I pulled them apart. I pulled it apart. Hang on. It happens every time, though. Anyone who's listened to more than one of these will know that it always falls apart at this point. <laughs> you unravel like weak spaghetti. <laughs> um, we're the What If podcast for movie sequels, prequels, spin off TV shows, you name it, Sheppy. A celebration of the property that we know and love. <laughs> that's, no, that's great. That, that was perfect. Very good. Um, and I agree. That is what we are. Um, and hooray for all of that. Jimbo, you uh, set this one, and it's another humdinger. It was just like when you set Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I thought, well, what's the point? I'm just, you know, it's like build your own existing chapel in it. Um, but you set something very exciting, and I'm glad you did. Uh, hell of a challenge, hell of an exciting adventure. What was it you set? I set us the challenge of coming up with another Faulty Towers episode, Sheppy, which is... Ludicrous. Ludicrous. Yeah, yeah, pretty, perhaps foolhardy, tough. I certainly found it tough. I don't know how you went as well, but yeah, it's <laughs> tricky, tricky, Sheppy. And uh, yeah, once again as well, I think I text you saying I, 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 I sort of, I'm broadly happy with what I came up with, but... Um, and, and skidding into the meeting without doing a second read through of this. So I'm going to be as surprised as you with some of the quips as I go. You have to bear with me on that. Well, you wrote something very confidently about this, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I like... think my premise was actually um, oh, good. one that I, I feel, I don't think it would be good enough for John Cleese to say, we have to go back and do a 13th, but I think <laughs> it's, it's one where no, that's like it, it was meaty enough. It's feasible. Oh, yeah, that's actually why that, that's 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 worthy of its own thing. And, well, that's wonderful. And I've even done it like a, it's a 13th F, it's a tight, you know, 30 minutes or whatever. But um, but the premise itself has enough legs that if you wanted to do it as your standalone one hour Christmas special a couple of years. Oh, wow. Ed, 
it has the legs to do that and i've given you a couple of thoughts on where that will probably go but i haven't done that episode if you know what i mean but, oh, yeah but that's tantalizing that's wonderful oh how juicy <laughs> oh well now i'm chomping at the bit um so so that that's good i'll say this it was much like rocky uh, when you said rocky five and that very night an idea popped in there sometimes it takes ages um, for something to materialize but it popped in there that night and it was the same with with towers in that that very night you set it basic premise popped in there although that's that's strong enough i don't know exactly what it was going to be but yeah and i'll talk about it more again oh, but, I can't wait yeah, but yeah so so that's nice i don't know if it's worthy of, i don't know any of any of it it's not even standing on the shoulders it's falling off and landing on a head not <laughs> your head landing on a head so <laughs> think about that you're making enemies left right and below I'm definitely under John Cleese's heel too, Sheppy. I don't want anybody to be any, uh, you know, under any illusion here. But, but it's been fun to do it. More fun. Than oh, it's been life. really fun. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. No, it was, and I have to say, yeah, it was, it was, it was a pleasure because I got to revisit some episodes, and then I got to write some dialogue, and that was my main joy. I'm sorry to say, there's quite you know, there's a bit of that in mine. But just like writing and hearing the voices um, made me happy. So it was a bit like writing for the Muppets. It was really nice writing for Sybil, actually. That's my, my little tiny spoiler. Is I, it surprised me more than anyone. I've always really liked Polly, and I would have imagined that mine would have been polycentric a little bit. But I uh, know it sort of leans towards Sybil, and, um, and so I, quite, I enjoyed writing her. So that was nice. <laughs> I love Sybil. That's going to be so cool. That's so cool. I mean, that talk about a show with iconic characters, Sheppy. Like, it, you know, each one of them is iconic, right? It's probably. It, I mean, whether it is still the very best British comedy of all time, maybe. I don't think that's a silly thing. You know, there's no pinnacle. There's no number one. It's all subjective for one thing, and also it's also relevant towards when it was made. That did that. Lots of different yeah. ingredients, and so you, there is no number one like a straight line on top of the cream level, you know. Yeah. And I think 40 Towers counts for that. I remember um, knowing 40 Towers, loving 40 Towers, talking to you and watching 40 Towers with you, and then finding out about Monty Python. And, oh, by the way, you know Monty Python? Oh, yeah, in the same way I've heard of the Beatles. Oh, but John Cleese was in that before he was Basil 40. I'm really, that's crazy. You know, it's like what you mean Sean Connery was James Bond before he was Radius. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody really, really likes Hans Van October. Um, so that was interesting. Um, that was, yeah. So from that, and I, was it that way with you? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. It was exactly the same, the same discovery line there, Sheppy, for sure. And something yeah. like, you know, um, stepdad in or, or or you know dad you know that we're all really like excited for us to discover if you know what i mean i mean yeah. one of my fondest memories is watching boy towers with my dad with you as well like you know yeah. we went off on one a bit when we were staying with him in denmark and we it was just nice it was nice to kind yeah. of um have something where you know it's always nice when there's a comedy show that that, that binds generations like that you know and uh, everyone finds it objectively funny and um well, I will say um, 40 Towers is, it's so perfect that you've chosen it because, because of that experience, it is very much I associated with you and 
I, I might have been the first time I'd seen those episodes, uh, possibly. Yeah. I had seen them, they were on TV and I'd seen them, but I don't know if I'd ever really watched them. I don't know uh, whether or not I'd seen those episodes particularly. I think we watched three or four, if I remember correctly, right? This is the early 90s we're talking about. But do you remember which 40 Towers episodes you and I watched in the early 90s, just outside of Copenhagen? I reckon we saw the Germans. I'm really sure that that was the one. Um, that's definitely what yeah. I have the most memory of because the the nurse leaning over and the my God, you're ugly. It was basically got, something we said to yeah. each other every day. I have written down in my notes, my God, you're ugly, as being a thing. And I know that is from the Germans. And I know, correct me if I'm wrong, you watched the Germans recently, right? Yeah, that was the one I did to react. And I, when you said that, I was like, I was tittering to myself because I knew that's when he gets the moose head on his head and he goes to the hospital. And he's like, my God, you're ugly. And that was a huge thing for you and I. And we said that to everyone. <laughs> we were popular for about three years. Uh, so that was great. I'll tell you one thing quickly before I forget. I don't know why. I've I want to mention somebody quickly here, the gentleman called John Duffy, who will probably never uh, listen to this, but... When I first came to Australia, he was my uh, a national manager for contractor mine. He's in his seventies, Sheppy, hilarious bloke, and you know still like really active. Uh, does judo every week, and but I used the moose's head uh, in in a particularly stressful week. Like it was one of those weeks where he was having to stand up something for me, and I had no visibility of it as his manager. So I kept calling him to say, "Is this being done? Is that being done?" And I, and I just said to him at one point, like, "John." I don't know if you've seen it, and I appreciate it. I'm super faulty right now, but essentially I know I'm asking you if the moose's head is up, but if I wasn't calling you to ask if the moose's head is up, you'd be able to put the moose head up. So I get really side laughing at that. And it, that for me has been a metaphor I've applied to every time I'm chasing somebody up for a piece of work. And I'm like, you know, I appreciate this is a moose's head situation. And it would be like, I'm doing it. And if you weren't going, Perfect. Oh, that's a real world solution. Uh, there you are. I love it. Um, and how lovely. And everyone can relate. It's you know everyone's seen that. It's like making a Del Boy reference. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, anything from England from above a certain age. I don't know above thirty. Yeah. You're going to get that all of that and probably more. I don't know. And um, so that's nice. Um, I love that, Jimmy. That's pure. Um, in terms of the episodes we saw in Denmark. Brilliant, Moosehead, turning, changing lives in that moment. That's your Anakin Skywalker, we don't want Kenobi moment, but changing lives in the Jesus-like <laughs> message. So that's nice. We saw, I believe, the one with the anniversary where Polly pretends to be civil in bed on that same yeah. time. That one stresses me out the most, I think, maybe. I don't no, know that's my I'm... least favourite episode. I've written yeah. down that's my least favourite episode. It stresses me out the most because I know you have to let go of it's like planes, trains, and house sitter, and other things like that. You're like, oh, just stay for another taxi or, or whatever. Like, no, no, you have to let go of that. The point of the film is you're going to get worse and worse situations. You have to accept that if you're going to enjoy this film. And it's like that with this, just like, oh no, I can't get in. Yeah. And also, I'm really rooting for Basil and Sybil, genuinely. Like, I, I love the barbed comments, but I'm kind of team them as well i want them well i it don't, yeah i mean okay well, I, I should probably clarify i'm really sorry but when i say i can't get in it means i can't connect with basil can get out of that situation yeah. so easily um 
and from the beginning so easily and it wouldn't matter it wouldn't matter and i know it's like i know but it's basil but it was it's it's such a little you know it's so much like oh we've had a bit of an argument or it's like when even when she drives off and they arrive you should say just drive after her and stop her and tell her you know yeah. and i know that's missing the point for, for 40 hours but it's such a little thing and all the way through all he has to do is stay um and so it stresses me out in that sense and he doesn't you know it's it's better when it's too it's a tiny bit more realistically out of his control and he does make it worse but it's there and it's not always his fault that sort of thing yeah. so yeah and we watched that we saw three episodes just recently prep i was confident that i didn't need to watch an episode you know, i'm very familiar with the episodes but and marsha and i by the way have been watching very sporadically 40 towers for the last couple of years every now and then that it'd be like a, a Columbo every now and again with the reporting towers, and it's nice because it's nice to draw them out anyway. Because then they well, I'm doing well, so oh no, oh god, how come? Anyway, now there's like 11, I've killed one of them. In any case, in yeah, in terms of doing it, um, yeah, and I, I the ones we've watched were, yeah, the anniversary we did that one, also, let me check actually, let me. Let me check my notes, but I wrote them down. Oh, yeah, we, we saw the Waldorf salad. So we saw a classic um, and the psychiatrist, which is where also the, he kept, keeps touching the booby of the girl. Oh, and yeah. Sybil thinks they're having a thing. That's probably one of my very favorite episodes. And I know I only saw it recently, and I saw it just after the anniversary. So I was like, oh, thank God. But it's so funny, obviously. But... Um, and then it's like, and I think we saw this one together as well, because I remember it, it's the, right, the game's up, and we did that a lot as well. And it's like a bit of game up, up on the roof there. Um, <laughs> so I think we saw that episode there, because, right, the game's up was almost as big as My God, You're Ugly. Um, so, and I really like that. And he touches the girl's, the Australian lady's boobie um, when he thinks it's the light switch, and that is not his fault. But what I like also is he has like soot or some shit all over his hand. And then he accidentally touches her, her booby again. And now there's a huge hand booby, you know, handprint on her booby. Then Sybil comes and she sees his black hand and her booby print. And, you know, and then he sees it. And what I think happens is he goes instinctively to try and brush it off and to clean it with his dirty hand. And he starts like touching it again. But, but he, and then he sort of catches himself and jumps back. But it happens so quickly. What I like to think happened, and this is my own interpretation, is that Basil sees the handprint and he's so freaked out and Sybil's right there and he doesn't know what to do. So he just has he just touches the boob again. And he just like he panics and just touches it again and then like, snatches his hand back. He doesn't know what else to do. Um, so that that's what I like to think, because that made me really laugh, um, just that notion. Um, but all of that is brilliant, and I really like that episode. And that's also Mother Thingy, Mother Thingy, come out, come out. And then she does come out, oh, Mother Thingy, oh, that's brilliant. And she's this really nice old lady. Oh, it's so good. And I'm really glad I watched that episode because, minus spoiler to mine, there's a bit, there's ample opportunity in my premise for Basil to be like in awkward situations and flirting inappropriately and being caught by Sybil in my episode. I'm really glad I re-watched this episode recently with the Australian lady because it made me go in a slightly different direction, um, which is nice and it's more interesting anyway, which is good. 
so hooray for life. There are elements from other sh other episodes of Forty Towers that I they're there that you can you can point to them. I wasn't thinking of certain things, but there's elements of different courts, for example, in mine and the test stands. I don't know, but I you know judge oh, that. I'm really excited about your pitch, Shabby. I I um I didn't do like a what was my worst ep or anything. I did like try and think what was my uh, favorite scenes and stuff as well. And like there are a couple I definitely wanted to just crowbar in before we like move to pitches because I um I thought well, hang on I'll just get my notes too. But I, I've got my favorite well, the favorite set piece I think is the fire alarm. I think that's just so wonderful the uh, the whole like you know different octave of the alarms through the fire and it's really wonderful. <laughs> I, I put like um, the uh, Connie Booth, you mentioned her at the top end. I actually was in love with Connie, I think, mm. back in the day. Yeah. Like, I think she's got really beautiful eyes. Yeah, beautiful eyes. Like, her eyes are very soulful, you know, they really kind of, anyway. But, um, and, uh, I, uh, but anyway, I just wanted to mention before I forget that my favourite moment of all time is not one that we've mentioned. And I'll be honest, it's one that then... Um, came a bit later but uh, but I kind of think about almost every week but it's just I, I, but I can't I don't even know I'm going to get the episode right but it, I, he's typing out a new menu so it might be Waldorf salad or it might be uh, something else but anyway things are heightened things are almost at their apex of the app and, uh, and I and I think it's Sybil maybe Polly but someone comes in to sort of challenge what he's doing and he sort of stops typing and says hang on a minute wait this might just all be a terrible dream. And then he just wags his head. <laughs> <laughs> then looks up again and goes, no, we'll just have to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a brutal whack as well. It's yeah. really full on. And because it's John Cleese, he has this really high, long torso. So his forehead just goes all the way down. Like, bonk. <laughs> I really hope that was some sort of stunt would something like really absorbent balsa or something, because that yeah. was brain damage worthy. That's a crack city. Um, but it could have been any app ship, any app, in a way, that situation. Like, yeah. you know, that's why I kind of get a bit lost as to which one it's specifically from, but um, yeah. But yeah. It's a great, great, great moment. Um, little shout out, of course, you've got to love Waldorf salad and the Americans and all of that. And you've got to love the one with uh, Bernard Priming, Wiggins, R.I.P. Uh, when he comes in and he gets yeah. fucked up um, and all of that. Um, and you mentioned Polly. I, I mentioned Polly. In terms of Polly, just to touch on that, and forget, I really like Polly. I, too, deeply in love. But I'll say this. Um, she's cool. And she's um, cool under fire. She's always team faulty, ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, she's always the one who really helps him out. She's kind of like um, the dog in Inspector Gadget. Um, she really, and that's cool. And also, she, yeah, they obviously have fantastic chemistry together between them together and Rosa Bucker. Um, and yeah, she 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 does get into some hot water and gets out of it in cool ways. And to say he's faulty, he's like brilliant and all of that. Um, so I like, yeah, so I like Polly and I wanted to mention that as well. And also Connie Booth in, I believe it's Life of Ryan, I think. Oh shit. Oh God, no, it, it might not even be. It might be either of them. Um, either way, let's say it's Life of Ryan. She plays a character called Zoot. So oh, um, yeah. that's, it might be Holy Grail, but she plays a character called Zoot. 
so that's special and cool. Hey, I'm zoomed, like, Connie Booth, could you be any cooler? So that's nice. Um, Manuel's nice, of course, can be a bit annoying, but that's the nature of the character. Yeah, yeah, perfect. And it's probably the most imitated character, you know, yeah. Back in the day, and I mean, if you like, you know, in common parlance, you know, it's that. Do you know, um, in Spain, when uh, when he's dubbed, he's German. He's oh, called really? uh, Gert or something. Yeah, yeah. And so the character is a German character in the Spanish version of Forty Towers. So I heard. So there you go. All right. Yeah, I know. Weird. You might have told me this, Jim. I don't know, it was over 10 years ago, when we were both living in London, there was this thing happening on the South Bank where you go to a boat and you have your meal, or maybe it wasn't a boat, maybe it was near the river, and you have your meal, and whilst they do it, they do a play, it's like, you know, theatre play type thing, and it's 40 Towers, and you eat whilst you watch actors doing yeah. their impressions of the 40 Towers. And I think it's whilst you wait, or maybe it was just you sat down and watched basically like a stage version of an episode, which is essentially the same thing. But I believe my memory is in the restaurant. Did you tell me about that? I did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never went to it, but I heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, so that would have been an interesting experience. And maybe it still exists about that. So, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Nice, Lovely. Yeah. Um, hey, look, I um I, I one thing that struck me when I was re uh just doing the time I didn't read any research like you, I felt pretty confident to to uh, I was familiar enough. But um I didn't realize there was a four-year gap between. Series I know one it's and crazy, two. crazy. I, I know. If you were to do like twelve over twelve nights, you just wouldn't notice, really, would you? So mm. it's really interesting. Now, I I just thought that was. And everyone looks the same, so far yeah. as I can tell. It's weird, you know. By the way, there's an episode of Doctor Who, um, and everyone's screaming at me who knows what it's called, but it's the one in Paris. And it was filmed whilst there was a BBC strike going on, but we could film it in Paris. It was Tom Baker. There's a scene with John Cleese. They did it because he's just hanging around doing Forty Towers next door in the pickup here in the studio stuff. And it's in an art gallery. It's meant to be the Louvre, probably, but it's obviously you know, BBC centre. And Tom Baker comes out, and John Cleese is dressed in his Basil Forty because he's literally between takes. Um, and he comes in and he like thinks the TARDIS is like a work of art. Like Sue was selling him for at that least. Oh my and he's God. like, oh no, this is beautiful. Oh, I see what they're saying. And I think Tom Baker steps out and he's like, ah, oh, excuse me. And fucks off. He's like, <laughs> extraordinary. And it's just like, oh, that's weird. But yeah, and he's dressed. It, uh, I'm even going to say it was from what he's wearing during Basil the Rat. I think that it's whatever combo he's going to be that they were making Basil nice. the Rat. Yeah, so there you go. A little bit of I just, stuff. Oh, I, all I wanted to say to it as well, though, Shep, was just I can't imagine two things. The sort of, well, I can imagine it makes me excited to imagine the free sort of energy around the cast of like all the gang back on the sets, you know, four years later and and they recreate the magic again, which is just lovely. Um, and they're yeah. all exactly the right age to look like they haven't changed as well, if you know what I mean, over four years. And then like imagine being a 40 fan at that point in time like it's you've been waiting four years bit right. of anxiety bit of trepidation is it going to be as good and yeah. it just is it's just yeah. awesome and i my only kind of um my only equivalent to that in a way in terms of 
all of the juices being in place of British comedy and everything, is Blackadder Goes Forth. And I remember going to the Greenland School open evening, coming home from that open evening before we were going to go to it, um, but being with the family at home and the last Blackadder Goes Forth aired. And I think in that moment, I knew it was a special episode of TV. Do you know what I mean? When it happened, I just remember it being quite obviously super funny and then very profound at the end. I just remembered the energy around it being that and it being the talk of the playground the next day, kind of thing. But just more that 40 Towers Series 2 must have had some real special juice around it. I wish I was aware of it then because that would have been very yeah. exciting. Um, yeah, it's true. It's so different. If you really liked the first Blackadder, you wouldn't like the second Blackadder. But 40 Towers, um, it is, it's seamless. It's seamless um, in terms of both the season and the talking. So yeah, it's really good. And I love that. I often think if I was me, exactly me, but I was in like, I don't know, 1963, uh, 62 and I see Dr. No, you know, would I be like, oh, a nice one. Uh, <laughs> in the gold finger, would I be like, that's a bit silly. It's getting a bit silly. I mean, Russia with Love was amazing. This one's a bit silly. Then Thunderball, like, oh, it was big, big budget, I guess. And then, oh, why has he got a cat? Oh, no, no, now it's Donald Pleasant's Fair Play. And then you're like, fucking hell, who's this guy? Lazenby. All right, settle it. I can't wait for the second one. What? Connery's back and he's wearing a pink tie. What's and living through that would be interesting. And like, because obviously, and then, you know, Roger Moore, I knew it. And then, yeah, oh, you love me. Fucking hell, live and let die. What does that ending mean? I can't wait for the sequel when Baron uh, Samadhi is definitely going to come back. Oh, no, Nick, that. So, um, yeah, that would be interesting. I, I like that what-if scenario. <laughs> um, <laughs> listen, did you have any more you wanted to say as preamble, Sheppy? Um, there was um... one more quote that I don't want to forget, and that was... Um, when he says to the old ladies, yes, well, but you'll be dead before me. Um, and that was something else that we liked a lot. And that then about 10 curious. years later, or even like at the time, <laughs> we were laughing about that. Yes, well, yeah. And then I think I said to you, um, and I might be misremembering, maybe you said it to me, but I think I said to you, um, just think, because we saw this in like, what, 1990. So, and we, I said, just think. Those old ladies are probably dead now. And you were like, fucking hell, Sheppy. Talk about a dream down. But now all I'm going to think about I can't laugh at that line anymore because they're fucking dead. So I was like, I think it makes it funnier. So <laughs> I seem to remember something like that happening. The line that defines us, Sheppy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, there's no blur, really. It's pretty, pretty solid. Amazing. I do love like how he has an engagement with inanimate objects and they they also to blame along with all the people around him like you know peaks with the car and the branch went on gourmet night you know um, <laughs> and attacking the car but you know I, that that to me is very special and something that I think about daily when things go wrong or contraptions don't work and immediately a bit of faulty kicks in in a trigger you know and you want to attack it with a big <laughs> you know like a uh, yeah, so I just I, I just wanted to make a note of that. It's crazy. There's a place in the countryside I walk with the dog, and there's a, recently there's just a printer there, 
um, like a, from an office and it's all smashed up. And I assume some people have done like an office space and just brought this printer out and just given it a, a gangster death because there's just this like smashed up printer like in the middle of the countryside in Rock Cali. So that's interesting. <laughs> um, before I forget, by the way, do you have officially a favorite episode of 40 Towers? Well, I think I think the Germans has got so many right. things, you know, but I have to say now, watching it again, like the funny walk is all one. I just the funny walk and the whole German thing, don't mention the war, that is genuinely my least favorite thing of the whole episode. Yeah. It's not that I don't like it, but it's just I'm just saying for me, all well and good. I don't really laugh at that, to be honest. I I respect the craft of landing it with the you started it, you, you invaded Poland thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I respect the bubble of clever writing there. But the rest of the app is just wondrous for me, and I'm very happy about it. You know what I mean? And um, it's all the ticks and things. And I'm going to revisit the psychiatrist though, because I've got a feeling yeah. it was the howl out loud uh, episode. <laughs> I think I it think might be. I mean, I'm not. I'm going to say it is one of my favorites. I'm not going to say absolutely, Your Honor, it's my favorite because I need to watch them all again. And even then, I think I'd, I'd probably be able to narrow it down to like a top three. But I reckon the psychiatrist is definitely. Yeah. joint top three really. nice i'm i'm yeah. getting on it i'm gonna do it i can't wait i'm so excited to to rewatch that one again because just the the old lady coming out the door really I'm oh my god still, still shaking my tummy a bit about that because i totally oh. forgot about that reveal it's just lovely <laughs> it's really good well i'm sorry i, I smashed it up for you no, but i'll no, tell no, you no. what i'm happy spoilers, I'm my eyes. <laughs> Um, before we get any further, there was one other thing. I did make a note. I don't know if you, you looked at this. The uh, the sign outside 40 Towers, which you should read 40 Towers in every episode, it's different. Yeah. I made a note of what they all are. Um, some of them I ignored, but I so really it's the best ones in my opinion. Um, one of them is Warty Towels. One of them is Flay Otters. Um Oh, there's also watery fowls. There's fatty owls. There's um, farty towels, and the astonishing flowery twats. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe it. I, I mean, like you couldn't. I don't know if you. I mean, you could do it now, but not necessarily for this show. You know, it's it's so. Uh, you know, the rest of the show is basically a you. Um, twat is that is it more harsh a word now than it oh, was I in think the 70s? So. Yeah, I think it is harsher now. I love it. It's amazing. I love it. I've revisited them too, to be honest, so that I could recreate one. And there is one in mine, but I don't know whether you've done one too, but I just yeah. I, I, just... I did. I did. Oh, um, I so that's cool. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not very clever. You know... I just switched a couple of they did the heavy lifting and I just switched a couple of letters. But, um... Okay, nice. Well, spoiler, I've done one totally random one which isn't an anagram or anything. Right. Um, but I've also done some proper um, using, being very, you know, just obviously using everything if I could, um, even if it's you know, not, you know, it's just what it is. But yeah, so I've done that as well. Nice, chefs. Well, should we get to it? Should we do it? I'm bloody... Yeah, I think so. Right I now. think so. So you, sir, get to go first because it's your baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited by that. Um, with that in mind, 
maybe you've written this or not, but is yours specifically, is the idea it is episode 13, so it does come after? I think what you're going to get is episode 13, but I don't like it, well, it will hopefully be, it'll just be 14 episodes, maybe, Sheppy, with yeah. the two of us, but, um, so you wouldn't want to land on that number, but I do think, it, like I say, it, it has that potential to be maybe a one-off Christmas special. The gang goes yeah. back together a few years later and that's it. And I'll, I'll definitely give you just a couple of threads to pull on it, maybe on that. But um, right. I'd like to, I would prefer to see that episode, but I just haven't quite had the time to do some of the nuances yeah, okay. that it would require. I kind of like it to be a standalone Christmas, but I've just done it as a, as a tight app, if that's all we could go over the no. line to see. Um, do you have a year? In mind and yeah, best I do. case, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've gone for 1981. I went 1981. That's wonderful. And, uh, yeah, and I just, uh, I was inspired actually, Sheppy. I'll, 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 I'll actually pivot out at the moment of the pl big plot exposition and tell you what inspired it, which is just a bit random, but it's just, yeah. So yeah. This is uh, 1981, 40 Towers. The episode is called Cockroaches, and. Um, we have, uh, you know, everyone's back, obviously. Cleese is faulty, Prunella Scales is Sybil faulty, Connie Booth is Polly, Andrew Sachs is Manuel. We've got Ballard Berkeley as Major Gallon. We've got then <laughs> our two ladies who, God rest their souls, and Jimmy <laughs> Cusler to give them their due with Miss Tibbs and Renee Roberts as Miss Gatsby. Imagine if they're still alive. Imagine <laughs> that. Jesus. You're like, death becomes them. Um, and then we've got three people coming in to the cast for this uh, one we've got peter egan um of uh lots of things now i guess people would know from afterlife with the cool kids but um, it'll always be uh, ever decreasing circles me too. <laughs> that's exactly the same thing and he uh he's playing a character called donald sinclair which um was basically the the original hotelier's name that inspired Cleese after he stayed at that hotel with the Python crew. So oh. um, I've just brought the name in. So uh, Peter is playing Donald Sinclair, uh, or a character called Donald Sinclair, I should say, because obviously Basil Fawlty is the, the uh, inspired. Yes. Um, Anton Rogers is a character oh. called Pierre. And, oh, uh, sweet. <laughs> Coming back before, uh, this is how he got Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Because Frank Oz was like, oh, he can do a French accent. Bloody love it. And uh, did I tell you he's called Pierre or not? Did I say that already? Pierre, yeah, yes. Yeah, cool. Because I just, um, it's so funny you say that, Sheppy. I've literally said this could be in the same universe. Like, but oh, we, oh. we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and then uh, Tessa Peake Jones. So uh, that's uh, the lady that played Raquel in Only Fools and Horses is playing oh, a lady nice. called Tessa. I've just called her Tessa to make it easy. Um, but uh, okay, and I put maybe there there might be some other oldies in this. I might have Winter Davis and Donald Sinden in you know, for this, and uh, but and it will become clear where they might fit in um, a bit later. But okay, Sheps, here we go. Um, so we start the app uh, with Basil behind the desk and uh, at the front desk, and he's a bit twitchy. He's typing away on his little typewriter where he smacked his head before. I was talking about. But he keeps like looking around. He's looking underneath the typewriter suspiciously, and then stopping, and then like you know. And Sybil is busy, you know, just but running the hotel, <laughs> and um, and uh, and then Basil sort of says, uh, you know, "Now we're out of ink," you know. And Sybil says, "Well, it's very straightforward. But it's a very straightforward sign, Basil. Who guess just needs to know where to be for us to drive them to Sinclair's. You could probably just write it." 
And, uh, and Basil's like, you want me to scribble on a piece of paper? This is a professional establishment. And, uh, and then, then he sort of uh, talks himself around and he's like, you know, I love how Basil talks himself around all the time from one sentence to the other. But um, he goes from it being professional establishment and then he just goes, but most of the residents won't be able to read it anyway. Right, right. And then he's like, he's around behind the desk saying, pen, pen, where's the pen? No. A major enters the scene as always, you know, and he's like, ah, oh, forty, you know, and then we have this expositionary exchange to a degree, where we establish that there's been a cockroach infestation, that the permanent residents, Tibbs, Gatsby, um, and the major are going to go with Basil and Sybil while the place is fumigated, to Sinclair's Hotel up the road, basically, and um, so that is the plot, Sheppy. That's what kind of occurred to me. Let's take Basil out of his hotel to another hotel nice. where he can prod and poke and make fun and complain and all that stuff. So and also a competitor as well. Yeah, exactly, and the pride swallow of that having yeah. happened would be awful, you know. So I kind of um, that was it. That was the kernel. That's what came. That's from amazing. And, um, That's great. That I can totally see that. Therefore, as a Christmas episode, because it's got a whole sort of special. Sorts. Completely, yeah. I think there's there's so much meat on this bone. It could do an hour, definitely. And um, and the other thing to say, just weirdly, is I was nervous, Sheps. I set this. I'm going to tell you ten days later. Jimmy's in a sweat because he doesn't know what they have to do with forty towers. And then um, and then we're watching Breaking Bad, and we've just caught up to the point where they pretend to, you know, during the fumigation process. Jesse and Walt do their cook inside people's houses, you know. Right. And, um, and it just made me think, what if Forty Towers had to get fumigated and he got bounced out into somebody else's hotel? That'd be quite fun. So um, anyway, so that was that's where that expression came from. That's but, um, so during the major <laughs> during the major exchange, um, we also established that the major is easily I'm just is easily confused between the bugs deployed for spying in the war and the bugs you might find in a kitchen cupboard. So we'll have some wordplay, you know, general major confusion there around, you know, what the bugs and what the... Um, and uh, and we also established that Sinclair's has a pool and a swimming pool and everyone's very excited about um, there being a swimming pool, including the staff, um, you know, much to Fulty's chagrin, I put. And, um, you know, all this time, Sybil then, you know, major maybe leaves the scene Sybil's then busying herself still and sorting things out. And, and Basil says to her, you know, do you realise our residents pay half, our permanent residents, half board? They're the bloody cockroaches. And um, and they're, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know why. Uh, oh, yeah, I put them basically both then in the back office having this conversation. Sorry, I should have said that. Absolutely, you know, Basil has this, they're the bloody cockroaches. And Sybil says, it's only two days, Basil, you know, and... Uh, Basil's like, 48 bloody hours with that smug, <laughs> self-righteous. And he walks out of the, the back office into the reception area again. And as he walks back out, um, Peter Egan is Sinclair is at the front <laughs> desk. And uh, he's like, oh, Sinclair, lovely to see you, you know, immediately. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, Egan has got in this, obviously, why I've cast him, that wonderful Egan smugness where you sort of want to be him and love him, but you recognise <laughs> that he's smug as well. And um, yeah, and he's he so says, smug. Like, <laughs> "Mr. Smirk, Mr. Mr. Smirk." Um, 
he uh, he just wants to be a high basil just dropped by to see if you need any help with you know transportation for tomorrow or anything uh and basil's like no no we'll be quite all right thank you so much you know the so much <laughs> basil is always a wonderful yes. life and uh and so just to kind of change tack or subject or whatever basil just rings the bell and gives it a manuel like that and manuel comes out from the kitchen espousing in spanish something about the food he's just had and um and and that he's just enjoyed from chef i actually really love manuel's relationship with chef and um and egan immediately starts sinclair egan you know what it's like chef he always also but egan immediately uh starts conversing with manuel in spanish of course he's he's wonderful enough to just speak spanish fluently you know and, uh, and they start laughing and joking together and um and he says to egan says to basil you know your chef will have to share his omelet recipe with me like that and basil is clearly disgusted you know and clearly put, uh, put back by the fact that egan's coming in and like you know flirting with his staff essentially and doing a better job you know and, and he was like, you know, that bloody chance, he's too pissed to string a sentence, let alone write one. Uh, but speaking of sentences, uh, speaking of that, Manuel, do you have a pen? And, um, and Manuel says, a ke, you know, a pen, biro. And Egan uh, Sinclair just says, lapis for that. And uh, yeah. basically they, they have this little exchange and, and Sinclair is just like, no, 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 lapis, Basil, just use mine. And of course pulls out a beautiful ballpoint pen. And Basil's like, you know, I couldn't possibly. And he's like, it's fine. Keep it. It's all good. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Then. So um, Egan leaves. Manuel goes back to the kitchen. Basil's back at his desk, impressed but disgusted with the pen. You see yeah. what I mean? Because like, he likes fine things as well. But um, So he unscrews it, finds a nice piece of card on the desk, starts to write, and clearly the pen is flowing beautifully. Do you know what I mean? Polly passes in and out of the area and just says, ooh, Mr. Fawlty, nice pen. And uh, Basil just says, bit scratchy for my taste. Uh, what are you so happy about anyway? And uh, and Polly's basically, you know, in love at the moment, you know. And she seems to have a few boyfriends here and there. Sometimes Polly does. But anyway, she just, you know, you know, nothing. So she's clearly in love at the moment. Polly always has her own life going on that we don't yeah. usually see very much of at all. And I like that. Because yeah, Manuel yeah. lives upstairs. But Polly, yeah, she doesn't. She goes up. There's definitely there's definitely some side stories you could do there. Polly's would be really fun to watch. Manuel yeah. be recalibrated is the darkest freaking show, you know, comes oh, to no. India facing his dreams. And then like, yeah. Anyway, just <laughs> um Sybil's back in the area. Basil, how are you doing with that sign? I want to give the guests at least a day's notice. And he's like, nearly there, dear. And uh, finishes off the sign with a flourish with the pen. He's clearly a bit proud of the calligraphy. Holds it up, blows it, leaves it on the desk, goes into the back office. Manuel comes into the reception area, busy again, spots a cockroach on the desk, eyes it a moment, finds the card that Basil just written, rolls up the card for the sign and smacks the cockroach with it, just as Basil re-enters the area and just gives Manuel, like, I put, it's not anger here, it's just absolute disbelief and just big... <laughs> John Cleese saucered eyes <laughs> of stupidity. Um, so that's basically close, you know, act one, if you like, to just establish things. We get um, the little Tweety, uh, Fawlty Towers theme playing a little over the top as we're outside the hotel. Exterminators are unloading their van and going into the hotel and Fawlty's loading up people into a little people carrier they must have hired with the elderly residents. Um, maybe, of course, this is a stupid gag, but 
maybe the little carrier's got a chairlift because they're all a bit elderly. And we have a wee, I, I've put just like a mind scene here. So the music's just playing over the top of it. And Manuel gets in some luggage situation, which is really stupid and shouldn't have got wrong. And Fawlty just beckons him over. I see Basil with his flat cap on at this point, you know, because he's outdoors, Basil. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and he basically beckons uh, Manuel over for getting the luggage wrong. Literally says, just come here, stand here. Manuel stands on the chairlift, but then Basil just presses the chairlift button. It comes up, and he basically just comes up into Basil's slept head. Like, you know, like, <laughs> um, and as the bus leaves the complex, I've just put the sign reads, Tarty Fowls. So I've just switched the farty towels around. So, um, but yeah, so that's just the little sign as they leave. Um, now I've put Sinclair's as the antithesis of Forty Towers. Modern, friendly, um, we meet two staff members uh, on arrival, an efficient Manuel equivalent, Anton Rogers as Pierre. Of course, Egan also speaks French too, as this character Sinclair. Of course, um, Pierre and Anton Rogers will have Fawlty's number and be suspicious of him at all times. I see this, I put, as an absolute very rotten scoundrels crossover um, <laughs> with the withering stares from Anton Rogers a potential for like a little montage of Pierre training Manuel, you know, and Manuel actually becomes awesome at loads of stuff like folding napkins and all sorts, you know, but um, anyway, <laughs> and there's a moment where, you know, Manuel's able to say, hey, look, Mr. Fawlty, a dog, so that with the napkin he's made and baby bezel hits him over the head with it because he's not being happy. <laughs> We've got the, the second member of staff we meet is a lady called Tessa, who's a bit underwritten here, but could pull out in, a, in an extended episode. Um, that's Tessa Pete Jones, Raquel, you know, a chump for oh. here, equally efficient. I can see them kind of giggling as they kind of like get to know one another a bit and they have a bit of a laugh at a lot, you know, that maybe Basil's expense a bit, or maybe like you say, though, she's team Basil a bit, Polly. But bottom line is, you know, they're they you know, oh, I fold the bed sheets this way, I do it this way, you know, there's, there's just a little rapport there immediately with the two of them. She would definitely laugh at Basil, and if she yeah. had a friend, a female friend. She would certainly laugh out Basil. Certainly, there's being Team Basil, but not being like loyal to that. That's ludicrous. Yeah, you're of right. Of course, working with him is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> um, and then Sinclair checks him in. He's behind the desk, and this is just a small little bit of extra exposition here in this scene because Basil's like, you know, wouldn't have thought you'd be involved with all that, Sinclair. You know, and. Sinclair's, you know, I've got to be honest, Basil, we're, we're really struggling for staff at the moment. We're so busy and we've got peak season coming up, you know, and then this basically sets in motion this key suspicion for Basil while he's staying at the hotel that um, Sinclair is trying to poach his staff, you know. I guess the seed laid with Manuel having Spanish spoken to him and Sinclair, he spots Sinclair and Polly chatting by the pool at some point. And, and basically, this is Basil's thing. Then he can't relax while he's staying there for all the obvious reasons around, you know, not wanting to be in a competitor's place, but but also this idea that, um, you know, he's trying to poach their staff. And I'll just put, of course, Basil finds fault with everything in the hotel that's actually really awesome. Of course, Sybil is really grateful and friendly and nice to Sinclair. And, you know, it's that, that's a very amicable relationship between the two of them. More than enough, um, you know, tourist business to go around. Basil would just sit still. Um, but this leads to, um, you know, the, 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 the ultimate scene, I guess, at the end here, where Basil's been complaining the whole time, been sitting really grumpily by the pool, for example, while everybody <laughs> else is playing and having fun, including his staff, you know. And, um, and it leads Basil to take matters into his own hands one evening and creep around to um, see if he can catch 
any uh, shenanigans of um, you know Sinclair or you know Pierre or whatever. And um, and I see this as having lots of uh, opportunity for Pierre to catch Basil in odd pockets of the hotel. And maybe we've got we didn't mention it earlier, Shep. We probably should have done the wall tap. Um, it's <laughs> stunning, you know, in terms of just checking the wall at various spots. Amazing. Maybe we could bring that back a little bit here whenever it gets caught by Pierre. You know, would would you use in this one? Well, um, that's another classic moment that we should have touched on because that the, the wall tap and then the window and then the ladder. Uh, <laughs> And we've done that as well enough time. We've done a wall tap. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then this basically catches um, in the end uh, with, with Basil basically seeing Pierre go into uh, Sinclair's room. And so Basil pivots, runs around the outside of the complex, over a hedge, and spies on the room from a window. And the window, um, basically from the window, Basil overhears Sinclair say to Pierre, did you manage to arrange everything for Polly? And Basil, feeling vindicated, lets out a bit of a silent, <laughs> and then there's a crack of a twig, and Sinclair's like, did you hear that? And then immediately, um, uh, but, but Pierre's like, no, I think it's nothing, I think it's nothing. And then, uh, and then they keep talking, and Pierre says, yes, everything is sorted for Polly. We've ordered the ring to your specifications, sir. And basically, Basil, at this moment, sort of unhands, and is like, Oh, right. Okay. So we kind of established there basically that the reason Polly's been in love is she's kind of been dating Sinclair. He's going to pop the question. Um, Basil cracks another twig. And then Sinclair's like, there's definitely someone out there. Pierre, I think we have a burglar. And Pierre's like, I'm on it, sir. And they sound an alarm in the hotel. And everybody wakes up. Uh, Basil is like running, you know, away from the danger. I see big lopey John Cleese leggy runs. And, um, Sybil wakes up. Um, leaves her room she's like what's what's all the noise and um and Sinclair's like Mrs Fawlty we have an intruder it's okay we're handling it and then of course he leaves and we're kind of almost the equivalent of an early 80s close-up on Sybil which is just like Basil she knows exactly what's going on <laughs> Basil's on the run in the complex um the run culminates with him at the pool and in the distance he can hear from one direction you know pierre and the hounds effectively and then from another maybe sinclair and some security and they haven't arrived yet but he's like he doesn't know where to go what to do there's nothing for it so he just says maybe out loud right you know pop about <laughs> and he just i put like he just he basically holds his nose and does like a really long leggy just jump and plop into the pool straight and then the camera i don't know if they can achieve this in the 80s but we stay on his face and he holds his nose, scrunching his eyes, and he's just in the pool for as long as he can. And then he sort of opens his eyes, comes up for air, and everybody is just standing <laughs> around the pool looking at him. Everybody, including obviously Sybil, furious with her arms crossed. And uh, Basil's just like, you know, I say, lovely night for it. You know, anyway, so that's basically the end of the episode. Amazing. Um, well, no, of course they can do that. I mean, if they can do it in the graduate they can do it yeah good point Sheppy. and so anyway i just put like you know if you have it as a christmas special i think you really go for it and you have basil about you know taking everyone for granted obviously because he kind of hates and resents everybody but then you know the, the the hotel potentially could be on the line for a joint venture with sinclair the staff could have all have their head turned in different ways by the sinclair mm -hmm. establishment and then maybe also um you you could have the guests looking to move as well and 
perhaps the major buddies up with Windsor Davis and Donald Sindenover Bridge or something. Yeah. Like, you know, and like, um, all that stuff. It's all in scope. I think it all deserves to be an hour. I think this one, by the way, Sybil, the close-up, the 80s close-up and the basil is, um, that's that's your trailer. We didn't do trailer moments because it didn't occur <laughs> to me. Because I don't know why would there be trailers? But there are trailers. It's BBC, like, this Christmas, five to three, it's 40 towers, everyone's back. Um, yeah, and then it's that basil. Um, yeah, that would be that's that's perfect, perfect. <laughs> and you see him run through the hotel as well. Yes, as well, bit, yes, probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and everyone goes nuts. That's the thing. And not even in the whole. This is the lineup, but just the advert. You know, they have like a thirty-second series of bits. With that like, you know, they're back. Peter Egan's back. <laughs> it's got I, I what I like about it is I like a a, a, um, a Christmas special that turns things to 11 but not 20 so no. for me fools and horses if they do a slight extension or they go to Margate wicked they go to Miami and there's a twin of Del Boy and it's a gangster run. Right. Like, that's yeah. 20 and I'm not really on board with that. Like, I really get that. I do understand. I bloody love. Oh, God. What's it called? <laughs> You've really oh, shit. coming on Miami twice. <laughs> yeah, it's Miami twice. Genius. Yeah, exactly. First time I heard that song. Die Hard with a Vengeance ripped them off. So uh, I know what you mean and I do agree with you. Having said that, bloody love Miami twice but yeah uh, Margate is better and that that era of Pinnacles and Horses before the Batman and Robin bit and so on but like 90s Christmas specials um Pinnacles and Horses I always think man for longer but it was only like five seasons or something and then it was just Christmas specials but yeah. yeah but it never went away but I was always thought like oh there must be like hundreds of episodes like maybe like 70 if yeah. that I just want to make sure we definitely capped off yours because that was brilliant. I love it. It could, I want it as an hour. I want it on the Christmas special. I've already got the advert in my mind. Coming this Christmas day. Baby, they were. Christmas day, 6.45. Um, so that's nice. Um, all of that's great. Like you say, you touched on those other characters. And what you touched on a lot of sort of potential avenues and they're all, you know, I wanted to chip in all the time. They're all really meaty. really the Egan nice. versus Cleese, I really want to see. Yes. I just really oh, it's want genius. To uh, yeah, no, good stuff. Good stuff. I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I'm very happy with that. Uh, really enjoyable. Do you see then the ending essentially being, like you say, the, that moment? I think so. I think you see so it then straight to credits. <laughs> well, that's brilliant. I, I love mean, it. If it's the hour long, though, it probably isn't that moment. It needs to have a, a slightly cheesier coda as far as Forty Towers could go cheesy, where right. he has his George Bailey moment and appreciates his guests and his staff somehow. How you do that, that that's a proper writer's room day without um, upsetting the integrity and dynamic of Forty Towers. But, you know, you probably need to ensure that he can still keep his hotel, his stuff and his family and everything, you know, his like, wife and everything. You, you know. could have them all back at the hotel and it's finished with the communication and they continue to like then it's set in Prince Brown or whatever. And they all send there and it's Christmas and they're all back and Terry is there as well. And, and they're like Merry Christmas said everyone, you know, it's like a moment maybe they have like some sherry, some port, 
just raise the glass and then that's bad and go, well done, Merry Christmas everyone. And it's just like a nice thing. And then like no one else sets the torch on fire and it sets the flame of war like <laughs> dust on that and the wall goes up. Like, oh no, and it goes nuts and then the credits roll over that. And that could be like the big out in terms of like going big on the Christmas yeah. thing. <laughs> Five minutes of pureness. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Funnily enough, I see the oh, some others do have them. <laughs> like, do, 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 do. but that's that would that's something else entirely. Uh but no, so, so that's all wonderful, Jimmy. Uh, I love it. I love it very much. It makes me very happy. Was there anything else? No, I'm just chomping now to hear the Sheppy uh the Sheppy <clears throat> Okay, so all right, so mine, Sporty Towers, episode 13. I'm assuming it's just it could fit in anywhere, but I guess it's 1978, 79. It's did we establish? I've forgotten already. Was it 79? I think the last season? one was 79, I'm not sure, but yeah, yeah. Almost. So let's assume it's 79, um, and this is just there. Um, it's, it's just another episode. Um, and it's um, the beauty pageant, and that's the idea. That's the title of the episode, and that's that. That was my original idea where we went off from. Um, tiny spoiler: for one second, and this is this is not where I went, but for one second, I had the idea that Manuel's sister comes, and it's not Andrew Sachs in a dress, still with a moustache. It is an actress, and it's Manuel's sister, and she comes, and she's really mousy and quiet, and there's this beauty pageant going on. And at the end, she joins and takes off her glasses and, like, she's really fit. And then, like, everyone can't believe it. But luckily, that hackneyed route was left untrod. <laughs> um, I went down different hackneyed routes instead. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to mention that. That was, like, a, a first sort of little thing. Um, but this is the beauty pageant. It's John Cleese, Brunella Scales, who I think is great, uh, Andrew Sachs, Connie Booth, with the Ballad Berkeley. Okay, you're gonna like this. Paul Shane, um, late late seventies. Paul Shane. Um, should we say who Paul Shane is? Heidi High. Heidi High. That's all you need, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, too broad for Paul Shane. Uh, Clive Swift, who some people might know as the husband from um, Keeping Up Appearances. He oh, was yeah. in lots of stuff. Now he's in loads of stuff. Um, but yeah, him, he's in it. And I, I'm so happy. Nicholas Courtney. You know Nicholas Courtney, Jimmy? No, you have to refresh me there. Shuffy. That's fair enough. I'm just curious. He was the actor who played the Brigadier in Doctor Who, specifically uh, in the 70s, Pertwee Who. He was one of the main dudes. And he's one of my favourite characters of all time. Bloody love the Brigadier. 1979, he's just, just around that sort of, you know, just a bit older than him. So he's in there, doesn't do much, but I couldn't resist the opportunity of having Nicholas Corey being in there. So that's nice. So that made me really happy. Um, there are three significant female characters in this episode. I haven't cast them because they wouldn't be cast by anyone who we would even know today. Um, but they're, they're members of the beauty pageant, spoiler. So they're tall, leggy, attractive, but you know, it's pure 70s. So you know what I mean? They're like, they're attractive, but they're not like 90s attractive. They're not now attractive. 
they're, they're, you know, they've got big wavy hair, you know, they're, they're fine, they're, they're tall <laughs> statues, nice legs, you know, they're fine. Um, and, there's, and so there's two of them. And they're perfectly nice and they, they probably will come from the sun. Um, so it's the sign outside by the way, the one which I basically just made up and it doesn't follow any rules is feisty pies. Um, it just sort of fits and I like it. But if you go more specific, you can, if you, if you cheat a tiny bit, you can go with worst wet fool. So, I, um, so that could be one. But also worst wet fly is another option. Or uh, this one is absolutely accurate, which is why it's the worst. Worst laugh, L-A-F, wetly. So worst laugh wetly is pure. Feisty pies is probably my favourite, but I do quite like worst wet fly. So there you go. <laughs> um, now I'm going to say up front. I'm, this is sort of I've got a lot here actually, but it's not in strict you know form. So I, I jump around a bit, but I think that's okay. Uh, and the plot is basically there are two major factors: the beauty pageant, and this is being held locally, and civil. Um, so that you know, that's one. And it's like televised and, and so on in, in, in that sort of thing. And, uh, and the second storyline is essentially Sybil wants an old heirloom valued for price. And I'll get into all of this. I'll probably repeat myself in terms anyway. But like, like I say, um, it's a semi-big deal, this um, pageant that's happening in town, in Torquay. Uh, Torquay? Torquay. It's being held uh, for the Southwest, so it's not that important. And all the local hotels, including Forties, are being booked up and used for judges and contestants and, you know, even some journalists and, and spectators or whatever. Uh, three of the judges are booked in as guests. Um, Polly is against the whole thing. Basil is miffed that he won't be able to pop down to town to catch any of it. And Sybil doesn't want him anywhere near such things anyway. And there is a scene, I'm going to jump straight in early on, at some point, just for a sort of an early taste, there's a scene where uh, so the three judges and a guest judge uh, brings up at breakfast, like uh, he says um, in, the dinner, you know, in the breakfast room, in the dining room, will either of you be attending Mrs. Faulty? Meaning the pageant. And Sybil's like, oh, I wouldn't have thought so, no. Some might give this a, might give this one a heart attack. Ah. Meaning Basil, when he's like, you know, serving someone else and he sort of looks up and reacts, you know, you know even with his back to her, you know, he does his head goes up like a dog. And she, Sybil continues, honestly, it's bad enough at the best of times. I caught him staring at a picture of Bo Derek for three hours once. Do you remember that, Basil? And Basil's like, I was reading the article, dear. <laughs> yes, I've never seen someone take so long on one paragraph. People often suspect you might be illiterate, don't they, Basil? And Basil's <laughs> like, only regarding the small print, my dearest. He's sort of muttering to himself, like, like on the marriage certificate. When it said, till death to us part, I didn't realise the death part would be starting straight away. <laughs> and the, the, the judge guest continues to Sybil, so you won't be attending at all then? And Sybil's like, no, best to keep him away. We'd be cleaning the drool out of the carpets for weeks. Nah. Um, so, so that's going on. So, <laughs> so the, um, we might have to send this to John Cleese already. <laughs> I don't want to get beaten up by someone at all. So um, the other storyline, Sybil has this family heirloom left to her by her grandmother, and it's an old vanity desk, you know, this little table with a mirror 
um, and Sybil says like, you know, she always saw that I liked it as a child, you see. And Basil's like, never could refuse a shiny surface or a reflection, eh, Sybil? Uh, so it has special meaning to Sybil. Um, Basil, as it turns out, should have had it appraised weeks ago. And he's finally doing it. It's a real moose head wannabe. Um, he's finally doing it, but mustn't let Sybil see. Because his lie is that he had it appraised, but they're being slow to get back to him. Um, and she has lost patience and has now called a place herself, making, a, making an appointment for an esteemed pressure, uh, professional to come down from Bristol that day to take a look at it. Spoiler, the esteemed professional from Bristol who's coming down to take a look at it is Nicholas Courtney. And he's still got his moustache from Doctor Who. When Basil hears this, he's freaked, mainly because of the cost of bringing in this esteemed professional. So he calls the antique shop in Torquay and arranges for the owner to come and have a look that day and get there first. If he can get it appraised before the man from Bristol arrives, Basil will be in the right and Sybil will have hired this expensive man for nothing, win-win. So, um, and so some, um, you know, a bit of the builders a little bit here. Um, so we open in reception and the first scene has Sybil and, oh, by the way, the local um, dude, the local antique guy, come on a phrase that I think, is uh, Clive Swift, uh, the guy from, um, you know, Keeping Up Appearance. Yeah. They, yeah. Um, so we open in reception, first scene has Sybil and Basil. She tells him to carry the vanity table downstairs as the man from Bristol is coming to appraise it that afternoon. They, of course, get into it about the price and how the local guy is more than capable. And Sybil is like, yes, and he'd be more capable if you'd actually called him to make an appointment like you told me you'd done weeks ago. As it is, I've taken care of it. My, my Sybil isn't great today. Basil's like, and you want me to carry it down here? Is that right, dear? I'm, so, I'm sure you can manage it, Basil. Yes, I see. And can I ask, uh, how am I meant to help with breakfast when I'm lying dead at the bottom of the stairs with a broken neck? I'm sure you'll find a way, Basil. <laughs> oh, yes, right. Well, don't mind me. I'll say to the guests, I drag my shattered cadaver past their feet through the dining area. No, I'm sure that won't put them off their kippers one bit. Good idea, dear. Um, so that's you've that. You've your voice here, Sheppy. You've your voice. like, well, if you're really that enfeebled these days, why not get Manuel to help you lift it? I'm sure between the two of you, you can manage an old small antique. And Basil says, you say that. I've been dealing with an old small antique for years and it never gets any easier. And Sybil's like, just get Manuel, Basil. And she leaves and Basil to himself is like, and you've tried that, have you? Getting a Spaniard to carry anything is a day's worth of labour in itself. Never mind getting him to carry the thing to the right place. At this point, the three uh, male judges arrive, I, I presume, to check in. Um, two are professionals and respectable, and one is Paul Shane. We learn of the beauty pageant, really. They talk briefly about this, blah, blah, blah. And it was Sybil, we find out, who booked them in. And they ask about the extra room that they, or maybe two extra rooms, that they asked for at short notice. And Baz, Basil doesn't know what they're talking about. And Sybil pops her head, you know, out of the little office door behind reception. And, um, and she says, yes, it's all taken care of. 
So uh, she's booked this extra room for them at short notice and Basil's like, oh, you've taken care of all of that, have you dear? Oh, how marvellous. And no one thought it might be worth mentioning that to me, did they? I mean, why should they? It's only me who has to make up the rooms, keep them free, check them out. One bed, two beds, one bathroom, no bathrooms. I mean, I only run the place. He then dings for Manuel to take their bags. Manuel arrives and doesn't know what he's talking about. Of course, uh, Basil and the three judges have trouble explaining to Manuel that they want their bags taken upstairs to the rooms. The guests that hold the bags will be right up and leave Basil to it, probably going to the dining room. Uh, Manuel's like, you know, well, Basil's like, Manuel, take the bags up. Okay, take the bags up. No, no bags up. Bags down here, look. And Basil takes uh, a long moment with Manuel and he explains uh, that a guest has bags, the bags go to the rooms. If the guests want you to carry, you carry! And Basil, like, carry the bags, okay? Carry the bags, okay? Carry the carry the bags, right, no, and he, you know, he's like, carry, 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 you know what? and he starts carrying the bags, and then he, uh, and he puts them down, and lifts them up, and he puts them down, and he's like, carry, 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 and he's lost his mind at this point, and he grabs Manuel, and lifts him up, and shakes him around, all the while, being like, carry, 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 and he's in the middle of uh, physically assaulting Manuel, um, when the three uh, pageant contestants arrive, three lovely ladies enter, uh, catching Basil in the middle of uh, immense physical abuse. And he freezes, then he drops Manuel and pretends he's like showing him how best to clean the cobwebs in the ceiling. Or, but I don't know if that's actually been done, in which case he's explaining to Manuel what it's like being tall. Um, and then he fawns over the ladies, but then he realizes they haven't been booked and he says he's sorry he didn't know. He leaves under the impression that the only representatives of the pageant currently booked in were the judges, which is the way Sibylla wanted it, of course. And lovely lady number one, I haven't even given the names. Isn't that awful? She says, yes, but our previous hotel had a double booking. So your wife booked us in last night. And Basil says, oh, my wife. My wife booked you in. Oh, how splendid. Uh, and so, yes, she has booked in the extra room. She didn't know it was going to be the lovely ladies. Um, and since she's made a big deal of not trusting Basil around all of this and was taking the piss out of him earlier, he's, of course, absolutely overjoyed, certainly because of the, of the pretty girl situation, but absolutely mainly because it was a mistake that Sybil made and thus he can't be blamed at all. And if they're going to be walking around looking nice with like their arms out or whatever, you know, he can't be blamed. Um, so he's really happy and he's reveling in that and he's commenting and chatting to the girls, but he's not leching or fawning excessively because, um, you know, he just he, he wants to stay clear, he wants to stay on the high ground. Um, so that's nice. And that, that was an extra thing because I didn't want it to be like the Australian girl episode with the booby lights on. Yeah. So um, a later scene... I can scene see where this is going, Sheppy, and it's, it's stressing me out in the best possible way already. But well, we'll see. I don't know. We'll see. I, yeah, I, you I, probably pulled we'll it right I'm interested. I don't know. I, I'd be interested to know. But yeah. And, uh, so a later scene has Basil and Sybil behind reception in front of some guests, and Basil speaks to a guest after two of the beauties have walked past, saying good morning on their way to breakfast or whatever. And Basil is like, remarkable, the female form, eh? Like Michelangelo himself decided to come down to the coast and present us with all the human body is capable of. And Sybil's low. It's what you're capable of, what worries me, Basil. And Basil ignores her and says to the guest, you must uh, forgive my wife. She's still a bit behind when it comes to things like this. 
Things like what, Basil? Oh, nothing, dear. Just simple concepts you may not be aware of, like beauty, grace, poise. Oh, so it's their poise you were staring at, was it, Basil? <laughs> it's an art form, dear, pure and simple. Yes, they're pure and you're simple. <laughs> right at the guest face, really including the guest in it. Um, Basil's like, nothing wrong with admiring peak specimens. Yeah, so we all saw you admiring those peaks. <laughs> uh polly um is against of course all of this and she's she has a nice scene where she's talked about that um but it's not helped when she must serve paul shane at lunch he flirts heavily and is all innuendo and wandering hands polly is sharp and sarcastic and biting and shows him up as being a fool with witty wordplay <laughs> that's <laughs> that's what i've written about that um Basil quietly to Polly is like, and I really like Basil and Polly's relationship actually. And, and um, he says to her here, look, I know he's a vetch, but just, uh, but just let him have his fun and he'll be gone tomorrow. That's not the point, Mr. Faulty. He's like this today with me and tomorrow he'll be just like it with someone else. Well, that's the way of the world, isn't it? I mean, if I let every lewd suggestion or untoward advance that I've ever dealt with upset me, and Sybil walks past saying, he'd be the world's happiest man. Ah. Uh, also, as he tells Polly, uh, starting now, he's really gonna, you know, he's gonna uh, not give the ladies a second glance, but once he's in the clear and he's innocent, and he has no intention of sabotaging this uh, and uh, by being caught drooling or whatever around the ladies. Um, so Basil makes a huge point of looking anywhere at them. At one point, of course, one lady comes into reception or whatever, then she's stretching after a long journey or she's about to go for a run. And so Basil is trying desperately, you know, pure please physical comedy of not looking, but everywhere he sort of needs to go, she's bending in vaguely provocative ways through his you know, sight line. So, so that's him just like doing anything to avoid stuff. Um, and each time Basil goes uh, to ridiculous lengths to not look. Um, and this makes a moment at some point where Sybil does apparently catch him looking um, at one of the girls. It makes it all the more frustrating for Basil, of course. Um, a scene in the lounge where Basil is behind the bar and the lovely ladies have finished their drinks and are starting to leave and they pass the major as he is entering and the ladies and the major have like a tiny little chat you know, share pleasantries as they pass. And Basil is making, you know, a huge show of like, you know, cleaning a glass and polishing it and holding it up to the light and keeping his back to them, you can see it. Uh, whereas the Major has no issues with having a stare as they exit. And he turns to Basil um, and he says like, by Jove, they're a sight for sore eyes. And Basil, you know, you know, make, you know of course makes a show of not knowing what he's talking about at first and then like, oh yes. Very nice if you like that sort of thing. You know, he's still squinting at the glass, you know. And Major was like, haven't seen legs like that since the war. And Baz like, a lot of tall Germans were there, Major. Germans, faulty, long legs. Never saw their legs, I shouldn't have thought. Of course not. Giraffes, faulty. Giraffes, Major. Where? No, you said giraffes. I did. You know, like blank look. Great, so. In the war. Oh, I see. Giraffes. Long legs. Uh, you were in Africa, weren't you? Was I? In the war. Oh, yes. Blasted things. Giraffes. Nuisance, were they, Major? Oh, no. But wonderful target practice. 
blasted more wildlife than anyone else in the 54th. But then there was just me and Mojumbo and Basil to himself, more like the charge of the tight brigade. Uh, meanwhile, yeah, so, the, um, so back to the vanity table. After Basil has learned that Sybil's contacted the brigadier in Bristol, he's suddenly motivated to contact Clive Swift. Um, he's less high-end, but he's not dodgy, actually. He's from like a local shop in town, but actually he's like a you know, nice uncle type cardigan wearer, but he's, you know, he's actually not like the, the, the builders. Basil has repeatedly lied to Sybil that he's contacted this man weeks ago, but he's in high demand, so good is he. In an early scene, we have Basil like, I told you, Sybil, I contacted the man, I con contacted him weeks ago. Oh, really? Just like you contacted the roofer about the leak in the attic? I did, dear. I contacted the roofer and I told him all about it. Is it my fault the workforce in this country takes three months just to open a letter? Yes, if you say so, Basil. You contacted the roofer and the attic still leaks. The whole roof is rotten, Basil. It could give way at any moment. Well, like I've said, my dearest, I did in fact call the roofer and I did also in fact contact the antique dealer. And Sybil's like, you contacted the roofer and yet the roof still leaks. You contacted the antique dealer and my vanity table still needs appraising. And Basil, like, well, I could appraise it right now. Yes, and he like, goes over to the table and makes a big inspection, you know, really exaggerated. Yes, yes, still a table by the looks of it. Yes, dear, <laughs> yes, four legs, still wooden. Yes, oh, it's all cleared up. This is indeed a table. I'm glad you're still able to amuse yourself after all this time, Basil. Basil's left by himself. He's like, what else am I meant to do? Amuse others? Where's the fun in that? Uh, so now in reception, Basil, uh, a little bit later, is on the phone, setting up an appointment with Clive Swift, making sure Sybil isn't around so as not to you know, catch him in the lie. Uh, Basil is trying to impose the quality of the dresser uh, to the dealer, Clive Swift, to come and look at it that day before the Bristol dealer Brigadier arrives. Uh, during this, Sybil, unseen by Basil, enters the back office from the bar and overhears part of the phone conversation um, thinking that Basil's talking to one of his quote-unquote leering chums about the beauty contestants who are currently staying. So Basil on the phone is like, wait till you clap your eyes on what I've got here. Oh, it's a lovely piece. Legs are strong, sturdy on top, and no scuff marks so far as I can see. Yes, a real find. Beautiful. Rare to find one in such good condition, frankly. Well, yes, much better than the old rubbish I usually have to look at around here. And in the office, we see Sybil react to this. And then we cut to Clive Swift in his, you know, in his little shop. He says, oh, the rest of the furniture's in bad condition, is it? And you know, Basil is like, bad condition? You could say that, oh, a frightful state. As old as an antique, but without the beauty or value. Ha! Yes, terrible condition. Unable to support anything. Just your basic eyesore. He cut back and uh, Sybil's eyes narrow. And cut back and Basil's like, what we usually have on display around here is embarrassing to say the least. Old, worn out, bits falling off, fluff in the drawers. And Sybil massively reacts. Yes, only a matter of time before there's nothing left but doilies and sawdust. And the dealer on the phone like, and just so I know in advance, are there any stains on the surface, old spills or some mark off a teacup, that sort of thing? And Basil like, oh no, no, this one I'm looking at now, perfect. Certainly no stains, so far as I can tell, and no ring to ruin things. Yes, clean, firm, 
maybe just a slight wobble. And uh, this is absolutely the final straw and Sybil bursts out of hiding from uh, the office and uh, Basil, of course, instantly changes tack. He's like bent over on the phone, relaxed, and then he suddenly springs up and he jumps out and he, he immediately is like here you know, into the phone. Yes, right, as soon as you can then, wonderful. Yes, see you then, and hangs up and you know, starts to scribble something on a pad, you know. And still was like, who was that, Basil? Like, hmm? oh, just someone asking about rooms, dear. And so it was like, it sounded to me like you were discussing something other than rooms, Basil. And uh, he's like, did it, dear? Oh, well, he was just asking about the surroundings, walks and things to do, that sort of thing. And what, sort, what was that about a wobble? A wobble, dear? Yes, Basil, you mentioned a wobble. Well, we're all human, aren't we, dear? The self, most of us, anyway. So she's angry and she's giving Basil the evils and uh, being very sharp and a bit smug with him. And he can't fathom it because he knows he's not doing anything wrong with the girls. Uh, so that takes his happy edge off at being guiltless. He's still being treated. Yeah. Um, Basil continues to desperately try to avoid seeing anything he shouldn't. At one point, he marches into the bar where one of the ladies has dropped her purse and is bending over just as he walks in. And he doesn't slow in classic Cleese fashion. He strides in, doesn't uh, slow, keeps his eyes dead ahead, walks right past her, just fixes his stare like at the wall ahead, walks straight into a chair and like flips over, crashes over, drinks an ashtray everywhere. And he makes a big show, of course, of it not being a big deal and springs back up like, ah, <laughs> and all that to her. And are you all right? Oh yes, never better. Getting the old circulation going, all that. And Sybil comes in after hearing the commotion and, of course, doesn't believe Basil's innocent explanation, assuming the worst and all that. Uh, and we see some more of these three contestants, they're all tall and leggy. And one of them really likes Manuel, not sexually, but she like finds him really adorable. And so this girl is like, there's a scene where she and Manuel, she's like, like a little lost puppy. And Basil's like nearby, like, perhaps a trip to the pound is in order. And she's all <laughs> falling over him, pinching his cheek and shit. And Manuel is loving it, playing it up. You can just see it and all that. And Basil <laughs> is jealous and he continues to mutter like, puppy, where's Manuel? Oh, he's gone to the country, afar, back to the plains of Spain. Oh, yes, he's there now, running free with all the other damaged dagos. And Polly uh, is like, there's no harm in it, Mr. Forty. He's just responding to the attention, that's all. It's inappropriate. Oh, no, Mr. Forty is just like a mother and a baby. Basil's like, if someone's mother were over, over them like that, I'm pretty sure the police would be involved at some point. Uh, and the lady is so much taller than Manuel. Now she basically has, it, has him sitting on her lap as she coos over him. And uh, some nice physical shtick from Stacks, like written. Uh, Polly to the lady, if you carry on like that, you'll have him rolling over and showing you his belly. And Basil to himself was like, he'll be showing you more than that if you keep this up. Uh, further confusion arises, um, furthermore, after all of this, uh, when Paul Shane, the, the, the judge, who turns out to be a real pig and is hitting and lecturing on Polly and apparently also has a rep with the models and the girls as well. And Sybil hears, overhears Polly and one of the contestants speaking about Paul Shane, the judge. And Polly is like, his eyes were all over me. And the lovely lady number one is like, you think his eyes are bad? Try his hands. He's like, oh, he didn't touch you. Gropey McGee, that's what us girls call him. But how terrible. 
Well, now he seems to have you in his sights, I tread lightly and carry a large brick if I were you. So this all adds to Sybil thinking that Basil was molesting everyone. After the problems that morning um, with Manuel not taking up the guest's bags, uh, Basil repeatedly is telling Manuel to carry things, carry, carry, carry. Basil's like, if they have a bag, help them carry it. It's perfectly simple. And finally, if in doubt, just carry it. Don't leave things lying around. Don't come and ask me if don't leave things lying around, all right? And immediately after this, we see the two old ladies are leaving their room and they meet Manuel on the upper landing and they both wish him good morning. And he then tries to heavy-handedly help them carry their handbags down and they cluck and fuss and very politely but firmly keep their bags away from him, to which Manuel is flummoxed, throwing up his arms in a what-can-you-do gesture as he walks away. And Manuel to himself, I try to help, they say no. I offer to carry, they say no. Feeling like you know, he's off. The polite and smiley ladies immediately start to gossip after he's gone with each other as they come down the stairs about how you must lock your room these days. You can't trust foreign types and all of that. How they always want something for nothing and all of that just for being lazy and talking about tips and old lady number one mentions like always keeping her handbag close by for fear of theft and all that and as they reach reception Sybil again catches this last part of the conversation and gets the wrong idea as old lady number one says I mean he's friendly enough but he's getting too pushy and old lady number two is like oh yes I know dear he just wants more and more it's ridiculous they're all the same you know they are dear once you give them something, even if it's small, just a token, really, that just makes them want all the more. And then old lady number one, honestly, if I see him looking all the time, I, he's always looking, but I never thought he'd actually stick his hands in himself. And Sybil reacts to that. Uh, and then she asks, calling from reception, like, everything all right, ladies? And they're like both at the same time. Oh, yes, thank you, Mrs. Forty. And they go into the dining rooms and then the old lady says, and don't even get me started on his sticky fingers. And, you know, Sybil does a spit take. Um, so Sybil <laughs> thinks that Basil's been pushed over the edge by all the pretty ladies and has basically lost it. Um, at this point, Clive Swift turns up. Um, at, and uh, Basil, of course, wants him finished before the man from Bristol arrives and doesn't want Sybil seeing him uh, because that will prove that Basil had been lying about contacting him weeks ago. So as he arrives, Basil and Sybil are dealing with guests in the dining room and he ends up speaking to Manuel, so Clive Swift, the antique dealer from you know, town, says, I've come, I've come for the appraisal. Manuel's okay. The appraisal. It's not April, it's June. No, no, I'm here to see the table, okay? I'm here to see the table. Oh, you want table? Uh, I don't know what accent that is. And, the, and, and Clive Swift is like, yes. Come, come, and he tries to take him to the dining room. Lots of tables. Look, you here. Come, look, you. And Manuel pulls him into the dining room and forces him into a seat, and they grapple. And the dealer's like, you know, no, not these tables, the old one. Okay, the old one. And big pause. Like, you want Mrs. Forty? Uh, Basil turns up and hurries swift out of the dining room before Sybil can see him. And after Basil repeatedly had problems getting Manuel to understand the instructions to carry the table uh, all over the place previously, now they have to take the table out of the office so it can be away from Sybil. Um, and so as Manuel and Basil, and this is a bit like the kitten and the corpse, as they're both trying to move this table 
it's a real some days you can't drop a bomb moment where they carry the table in one location and there's civil move out but then they get like shanghaied by something else so um so they're carrying it from room to room and hijinks so and people are trying to spill things or put things on it and, and basil's trying to keep it pristine and all that but it could be worth something um and so now the esteemed professional arrives court you know nicholas courtney and basil lies to him catches him and says like no no the table's been appraised wife's fault sorry and then he should you know take it up with her um, and they have a bit of shtick and Courtney is like, I'll still have to charge you for my time, you know, you know, very well spoken. And Basil's like, like I said, sir, take that up with my wife if you'll be so kind. Thank you. So Courtney leaves um, to drive back, perhaps at that point. Um, but he leaves his gloves on the reception desk. So didn't have to make a big thing of it, but eh, spoiler. Um, so Polly, but he'll still have to be paid. She says that to Basil. And uh, Basil's like, so? My dear girl, you don't really think it's about the money, do you? It's not. Some things are more important than simple cash, Polly. They are. Oh, get your head out from between your purse strings. There's no cash equivalent to the betterment of mankind, to curing disease, ending war, winning an argument with my wife. Priceless, really. <laughs> so, so now the table is being moved by Basil and maybe Polly as well, but certainly Manuel. And Manuel's still having trouble under, understanding Carrie. And, you know, don't wait for me, just carry. And the local man, Swift, is first tied up with Sybil. And, um, so, and then he's distracted by the lovely ladies who are strutting about. So Basil loses where he is and he carries the table to the bar where he left him only to come face to face with Sybil, to him and Manuel, then like, you know, back out really quickly and stash the table anywhere else. Um, Swift is never where Basil needs him to be or expects him to be, and there's lots of close calls. Um, and, you know, Swift is just getting drunk, basically, and chatting up the girls. Um, Courtney comes back and asks if it's possible for him to have a meal before he drives off to Bristol, and Basil fobs him off, and he's, like, desperate to get him out. Like, oh, sorry, kitchen's closed. But I can see people eating. No, no, sorry, no, no, no. They're just, uh, they're just like here, yeah, actors. They're actors, and something, something ridiculous like that. So he fobs him off, and he kicks him out before Sybil can see him. Um, he's, uh, but he's a he's about to leave, and then Nicholas Courtney sees the lovely ladies, and he's entranced, and he starts to follow them into the lounge, you know, the bar. And Basil and Polly do some excellent teamwork to get him to leave, barely managing to get him out before Sybil enters. Um, and he's trying to you know, order a gin and tonic and chat to one of the girls and shit. Um, and there could be a nice moment where he and Swift are at the bar, both like different types of experts and making it best. More complications as people keep almost damaging the table. Someone tries to set their drink on it. Someone else wants to drop cigarette ash on it. Each time Basil avoids uh, anything touching the table, even if like someone sets down a glass and just as they let go of the glass, <laughs> he whips the table away and the glass smashes, stuff like that. Um, they end up being forced to move it to the dining room where Basil throws a tablecloth over it in, in a moment of desperation. This is civil enters. Some judges then come in to uh, sit down to eat. Um, and they, you know, they're served uh, just as, and then of course this food arrives just as Sybil leaves and Basil rushes to get the table um, out from under them. Um, but he's forgotten which table it is. And so he's going around actually looking under all of them. He's getting Manuel to look under. But Manuel's looking, he doesn't know what he's looking for. Um, and you know, he's lying on his back looking at the tables to see. 
Um, and you know, and he, Manuel's like, Pontos, underlay. So uh, Manuel takes the tablecloth off one of the you know, off one of the tables and just does a real flourish, keeping all the stuff still on there, does it really cool. And uh, Forty is impressed, and of course Forty then does it, and everything crashes. <laughs> Classic. Um, the correct table is found just as Manuel is actually about to pour gravy all over it as he's serving. So Basil whisks it away and leaves Polly to deal up with the mess, and he and Manuel charge out of the dining room with it, still with the guest food on top, and the guest is chasing after them, and Basil takes like this big chunk of meat. I don't know what it, I just see like a big chunk of meat off the plate, like throws it, you know, back behind into the dining room, like he's doing it to a dog to like fetch, to get the dog to chase it. And it works, because the guy just like turns around and goes and chases me. He's just like, you know, he's not gonna eat it, but he's just like, unbelievable. Uh, with all the exits blocked, Basil and Manuel now have to rush the table upstairs and dive into a guest bedroom, but it's occupied by two of the lovely ladies, and they're currently in their bras or whatever we can get away with on the BBC, and are changing for the evening, putting on their makeup and brushing their hair and so on, and Basil and Manuel burst in carrying this table and then of course freeze and stare, and Basil then you know, continue, continues to try desperately to not looking at them, so he drops, you know, he covers his eyes, dropping the table on his foot. So then he's like dancing and hopping in agony, but whilst laughing heartily to the ah, oh, just a bit of fun, you know, and hopping, still looking everywhere, but at them and therefore, because he's not looking at them, he's looking at the ceiling, he's bouncing off walls and shit. Manuel is just staring and smiling and being happy. <laughs> Basil tells the ladies he's just coming in to see if they wanted any more furniture in their room. And that's where they got the table. Um, but no, I see you're more than endowed, equipped, uh, respectful to your furniture, so we'll just be leaving, and they try and take it out, um, and they, they get out of the room, but Sybil is just coming up the stairs, so they go back inside the room and close the door, and the girls are kind of perplexed, and Basil makes a big show of checking their furniture, making sure they have everything, but still not looking at them. Um, make sure they have the right amount of furniture, and you know, maybe this is too much, and he you know, takes a large picture off the wall. And the girls are protesting, like, no, no, it's lovely, leave that. Uh, but caught in the moment, Basil kind of believes his own scenario for a second. And he actually tries to take the picture away. Um, uh, but then he's like, catches himself. And, and he's like, oh, yes, of course. And, you know, the picture. And he just hands them this big framed, you know, painting or something. And, and Manuel, um, again, forgets to carry and a brief moment um, of Basil being like, oh, wait for me, carry, carry, carry. As they take the table and charge out of the room, they come face to face with the major who's just coming up the stairs and he almost knocks his pipe out on it. But Basil you know, gets it away from him just in time and then they rush it upstairs to the attic and dump it there for a moment and, and Basil and Manuel are taking a breath. He's like, come on, leave it here, come on. And he takes it away and they leave it to go and collect Swift from downstairs to bring him up to look at it. And we, but we stay, after Manuel and Basil leave, we stay on the table for a second and then from the ceiling, we have a drip, drip, drip starts uh, with water starting to come down. So downstairs, uh, Swift is still trying to chat up lovely lady number three in the lounge. Uh, and he's on like his third or fourth gin and tonic. And he's got his little 70s cigar. And Basil rushes in and shepherds him upstairs. Like, come on, come on, to see the thing. And he, and he gets him upstairs, um, you know, protesting and so on. And he gets him into the attic and he throws open the door to the attic with a ta-da type movement. And then his triumphant smile vanishes as he sees the leaky roof and the drips landing on the tabletop. 
And so Basil yells and you know in panic and rushes forward and pushes the table out of out from under the drip, but heaves way too hard. And the table now I don't know how far to go with this, but I'm 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 going to the limit. Uh, the table is pushed right through the wooden slanty wall, which is just rotten um, and wet. And the table goes through the wall, which is paper thin, and it goes out, crashing through, making a hole. We cut to outside and we see it fly out and the table falls through the air and crashes uh, down below just next to the, the car park and uh, into a million pieces. And there's a stunned and loaded silence back in the attic as they all stare down at it. And Basil to himself is like, should have called the roofer. Uh, so he and Manuel charge downstairs, leaving Swift looking very perplexed and a bit lost up there, covered in sawdust probably. A gathering is forming in reception, and then one of the old ladies, Mr. Fawlty, Mr. Fawlty, I heard a terrible crash. And Basil, like, oh dear, perhaps it was the radio. Oh, and they all like, that's not the noise, that's not the noise the radio makes. Oh, well, maybe you're on the wrong station. And Basil <laughs> grabs Manuel and tells him to get outside, hide the wreckage, hide, 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 okay? Oh, just deal with it, would it? And Manuel scuttles out and rushes, Basil rushes to find a box to hide, you know, and he rushes into the kitchen or whatever. And so everyone is gathered in the reception area now, coming out from all over. Lovely lady one and two have been uh, observing Forty charging around, and he rushes past him, excuse me, excuse me, and he leaves the room. And now they turn and talk to Polly, and lovely lady number one says, you're Mr. Forty. He's all right, is he? And Polly's like, why, what do you mean? And she says, well, he tried to come into our room. And Sybil's walking past, she's like overhearing, I'm sorry, oh, Basil tried to force himself into your room. And she's like, yes, he said he was just trying to take our picture. And Sybil's like, he wanted to take your picture? Oh yes, we wouldn't have minded really, it's just we were getting changed at the time. I see. So Sybil goes um, to the lovely lady's room and bursts in, <laughs> expecting to find that Basil. Brilliant, <laughs> but there's a twist. She bursts into the room and she finds dodgy Paul Shane, Judge, and lovely lady, third lovely lady, sitting together on the bed. And Shane is obviously making a move and he's stretching his arm around her shoulders and you know, pulling her in in a grotesque distortion of avuncular affection. And she's like clearly very uncomfortable. And Sybil like stands in the doorway for a beat and Shane turns to see her and he says, Shane's like, no room service for us, thanks love. We'll be turning our own sheets here. And Sybil takes this all in for a second, then walks across the room right up to Shane and grabs him by the ear and twists sharply. And Shane yells with pain and leaps up. And Shane's like, hey, what's the big? And Sybil keeps hold of his ear with one hand and grabs his elbow from the joint behind and pushes it hard, making him yell again. And Sybil literally strong arms Shane out of the room, across the landing and down the stairs where the crowd is still gathered. And in front of everyone, including Basil, who's now there with a large box, she marches Shane across reception and to the door where she releases him with a push, sending him staggering. And Sybil's like, you needn't worry about your bags. I'm sure your colleagues won't mind packing them up for you. And Shane, outraged, but on the back foot, is like, you can't do this. Let me in right now. I'm sure you're here. All, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but no. Goodbye. And Shane, staggering away, is like, that's the last time I come here. And Sybil's, or anywhere else, if there's any justice in the world. 
and Shane leaves, staggering away in shock, and she re-enters reception, and Polly is like in awe, and there's a stunned silence, and Polly's like, Mrs. Faulty, and lovely lady number three is like, oh, but I hope I didn't cause any, you any trouble, and Sid was like, that's quite all right, dear, he's already paid, and in the reception area, there's a, a, like a revered, uh, revered hush and awe, and even Basil is silent and impressed and hesitant to break the silence. And there might even be a moment of solidarity and kinship between Basil and Sybil for one second, where they, their eyes meet and they almost kind of they have a moment, and a moment of hush and calm, and Sybil to the room, right, well, that's all there is, nothing else to see here. And then uh, Manuel walks in, carrying in his arms the remains of the vanity table, all stacked up, and he walks right into the centre of reception and dumps it down in front of Basil, Sybil, and everyone else. And Manuel, very proud, says, Mr. Faulty, you see, you no ask, but I carry it in. It all smashed, but I carry anyway. It smashed, it destroyed. I carry it all myself. You no ask me, I do anyway. I'm very strong. I help, I carry, you see. Carry, carry, carry. Carry, carry, oh, carry. <laughs> can't believe it, and he wants to make a move on Manuel, uh, but there's no time, as Sybil and everyone else are right there. And at that moment, the dealer from Bristol, Courtney, comes back in, and he, and he says, I forgot my driving gloves, and he takes them, and, um, and he's walking out, and he looks at the pile, and he looks at Sybil, he says, I hope that's not what I was supposed to value. And Sybil says, not exactly. During this, Basil has rushed through the crowd um, and out, using that as a distraction, out the main entrance, sprinting away. Sybil sees him go and she walks calmly past Courtney, past the lovely ladies, past the guests and Manuel and Polly. And she goes to the, the pile of bits and she bends and she picks up a table leg. And Sybil says, Polly, take any messages. This may take a moment. And then she walks out of the door with the leg following Basil's retreat. And we have credits. And believe it or not, I have a, a, a tagline for, for 40 Towers. Um, and it's just no room for cretins. So, so there you go. That, it, was, it was so, so fun to, to write that, Jimmy. So I'm so glad you did. It, it you lovely. can feel it, Sheppy. You can bloody feel it. Like the you know good lord my friend listen let me just say a couple of things here that was so beautifully crafted with the picture coming back with the, the even the carry 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 coming back with like the just even just it being a beauty pageant and a vanity mirror like you know the kind of the table and everything it's just, man is bloody bloody that was very very uh, you know Difficult ever to say anything's perfect. I can't find a flaw, but let's just say it's close to perfect pitch as I've ever heard I from think, the lips. Like, it was amazing. Even, my man well-sounding Chinese was probably one <laughs> Maybe that's the one imperfection, I don't know. But I will just say, man, like you've got the voices though, generally, and you've got their dialogue, their argo, what they would say in the moment was just bloody on the money. It was so good, particularly simple, as you said. Like, she is actually the MVP of the most. She's an amazing character, actually, in the end. And that's so cool. Yeah. You've got it so perfect. It's amazing. And, and hopefully I've and given the, Scale some real acting shtick to do, like with the reacting, listening yeah. in from the office. I could really I see her like, getting her teeth into that. And just... 
Ah, oh, so cool. And even just like, Thanks, it feels like when he falls over stuff and there's ashtrays on the table, because of course there are. It's like you really, <laughs> you were there. You really went for that, man. I mean, look, there are every pitch of yours has been first class. Let me tell you, this is one of those pitches where I'm so glad I met you. <laughs> oh, that's, that's heartwarming so, in a healthy way. It's just like, holy crap, that was good. That was really good, man. Was really well, thank you very cool. much, I'm Jimmy. Just so, like, I, I hope some 40 Tales fans get to hear that because that was just really perfect. And I, I was worried at one point you got it to the point where, you know, this is it. This is the straw for Sybil. This is the one where there's no coming back on the marriage or anything. But just the very fact that she chases him with the stick means we can be back in reception next week with Basil and Sybil <laughs> again. Like, do you know what I mean? It's just nice. Yeah. So I'm really happy about that. Yeah. Nice. Oh, well, thank you, man. And lovely. And like I say, I would never have thought of it. So I'm so glad you did it because it was nice just to watch those episodes and just again spend the time with the characters. It was lovely. So you it's a good subject. Justice, man. You did them all justice. Amazing. All right. Well, well listen, I'm, I'm conscious of your hour. and uh, That's all right. Uh, I'm double tea bag. We're all good here. <laughs> but yes, with that in mind. Final um, order of business. Interesting stuff. I don't know, interesting, random choice, very random, just random. You'll be like, oh, okay. Um, I don't think we ever watched this together. I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it's American Werewolf in London. I would like a sequel. Okay, wow. Yes. Happy. Okay. So um, I'm interested. I'll tell you this straight off the bat. John Landis has said at one point he wrote a sequel script to American Werewolf in London. And he said it was the best thing he's ever written, but no one wanted to make it. I don't know when that would have been, if it was 80s, 90s. Wow. Um, or even later, I don't know. So that's interesting. But, and there is an American world in Paris that exists that came out in the late 80s, 90s, and like 98. And I saw it at the cinema I haven't seen it since. Not very good, but there you go. Um, but we can pretend that doesn't exist. But there you go, Jimmy. I like that. I'm I'm, I'm going to try and rewatch it as well because I've seen it a couple of times. But you know, um, yeah, no, that's it's that's a good nice. idea. Yeah. Do you think she would like it? I'd say so. Yeah, it's pretty universal, isn't it? She likes the Shaun of the Dead and whatnot. So. Well, yeah, nice. Well, it's one know. of those films, isn't it? It's like the Shaun of the Dead, and there's that, which is really equal parts horror comedy. There's Ghostbusters, but that's comedy with, you know, horror bits. And there were horror bits with funny bits, but exact 50 50. Crikey, but we'll give it a bash. That's that's exciting. And I'm looking forward there to it. There you go, love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm, I'm very excited to hear yeah, your, your thoughts of the rewatch, frankly. So that's <laughs> the wonderful Jimmy, which now just leaves us with how do we sign off today, uh, given this uh, some sort of calamity that must ensue or some such? I've just got one thing to say to you, Sheppy. My God, you're ugly. <laughs> Hi, Jimmy here. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you, so do feel free to reach out to us at shoulderspod.com. Uh, let us know any sequels you'd like us to do, or even your favourite sequel. Also, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a review or a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs>